All right, if you'll take your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 5. When we started our study of the Sermon on the Mount, I told you that Jesus is calling us in the sermon to live in a way that is countercultural. We should be recognizing as we, as we go through this teaching from Jesus that he's describing a way of life that's different than the way we're inclined to live. And he's describing a way of life that's different than the world would encourage us to live. He's describing life in the, in the kingdom of God. We're told that when we come to Christ, we enter into his kingdom, and now we live as kingdom citizens. And to live as a citizen of the kingdom of, of God, it, it looks different than living as a citizen of the kingdom of the world. It's countercultural. We saw this from the beginning of the sermon, didn't we? Think back to the Beatitudes. Think about the way we naturally live, the way we naturally respond. On our own, we are not people who are poor in spirit. I, you, we're inclined to pride, aren't we? It's because of that same pride that we don't like to admit, we don't like to confess our sins. We aren't a people who naturally mourn our sins. But this is the call. Jesus says that his people are people who mourn. The good news is those who mourn will be comforted. But we don't do that naturally. He says that his people are meek. His people are people who, who care about what he says and are willing to submit to what he says, even when it doesn't feel like what's natural. We're meek. Along the same lines, Jesus says that his people, the people of his kingdom are people who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For those of you who've been on Wednesday nights, this is just, you're, we've been talking about this a lot, but to, to, to long for to, to hunger and to thirst for what is right. I want to know what's right, and I want to live in what is right. I, I hunger and, and thirst for righteousness. This is how God describes his people, and that doesn't come naturally, does it? That's not the air that we breathe. When we start to live God's way, we find ourselves in difficult territory, and we are definitely going to see that in our passage this morning. It's a passage where God helps us to consider marriage, the significance of marriage, the worth of marriage, and more specifically, the, the permanence of marriage and the subject of divorce. And this is a place where we feel tension, don't we? We, we feel a chasm because the world and even us naturally, we, we tend to come at this thing differently. But what we see here through this teaching from Christ is what life should look like for the people of the kingdom of God, the people who he's called to be salt and light. We should live, we should think, we should function differently from the world around us. Now, let's just be upfront. We live in a world that is somewhat flippant about the subject of marriage. Maybe now more than ever, people are slow to even enter into marriage. We, we wait a long time. As a society, we don't place a high value in the covenant of marriage, which is why we have a whole generation of people who prefer just to, to live together as opposed to, to making that next step. 
And if and when they choose to marry, if it doesn't go well, we'll just walk away. It's common. Marriage is treated as something that we can take or leave without much consequence. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it can be ended. And that's just, that's pretty normal. What we see in the teaching from Christ is that God has a different standard. He calls us, he calls his people to think more of marriage than the world does. To hold it in higher esteem than the world does. So that's where we're headed. Talking about the, the permanence of marriage, it's, it's countercultural. Before we dive in, I do want to acknowledge this, that for some of you, this may be a hard passage to consider. It may elicit reminders of some of the very most difficult moments in your life. As we walk through the text, we're going to consider what God has to say about divorce. And I know for some of you, that's a topic you wish that we never talked about. It's personal. It's painful. And I, and I hope you know my heart, church. We're in this text because it's the next text that's come. And my, my goal would not be to inflict pain. <laughs> my goal for all of us every week is to hear what God says and to believe it. And so we're going to hear Jesus explain that divorce in most cases is contrary to the will of God. That divorce exists as proof that we live in a fallen world and things aren't as they should be. We're sinners trying to live with sinners. For some of you, this, this text might bring up guilt because you may have been a part of a divorce that was your choice. And you carry that burden. Maybe you ache because you went through a divorce that you didn't want or pursue, but it's where you are. Maybe this is a reminder of pain because your parents or someone you're close to divorced and impacted your life in a way that it's not easily summarized. The reality is I would be surprised if there is anyone in the room whose life has not been impacted by divorce. And so you may be struggling right now. You're thinking, I need to go to the bathroom, right? Right? There's shame. There's guilt. There's anger, maybe. Maybe a desire. Just let me tell my story, right? I just want to clear the air. Let me justify myself. I get it. I want you to, to hear this before we go to the text one, you're not alone. And, and we try very hard to come to every week and to say this, we're all sinners. And this is why Jesus came, right? This is why we, we, we celebrate because God is merciful and gracious and kind and there is forgiveness for sinners. So let's be very clear about that at the front. This may be hard, but perhaps you can find joy this morning in remembering that no matter what I've done or has been done to me, God is merciful. Some of you have been sinned against, and I want you to know that Jesus lives to offer you hope in the midst of the pain of that sin. I also want to suggest this morning that this is a good chance for us to flex our, our muscles and, and consider how do we respond to hard texts? And maybe this one's not hard for you, but they're coming, okay? How do we respond to hard texts? Would I suggest that 
the introduction to this sermon, not mine, but Jesus', Jesus introduction to the Sermon on the Mount helps us to consider how to process hard texts. We should hear God's word and respond as those who are poor in spirit, recognizing you are God and I am not. We should respond to God's word as people who are ready to mourn, knowing that those who mourn and repent of their sins will be forgiven. We should respond to God's word as those who are meek. God, I will submit to your word even when it's hard. We should want to come to God's word and respond as those who would, who would hunger and thirst for righteousness and say, God, I just want to know what's right. We could go through the whole list of Beatitudes. I think they describe the kind of heart that would enable us to hear well. Even when texts are hard. With that said, let's go to God's word. Just two verses this morning. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Now, if you've been with us, you know that, that our goal here, it's actually twofold. We want to understand verses 31 and 32, but we also, the reason we're, we work through passages this way because Jesus is trying to teach us more than what's said in verses 31 and 32. We're in a, in a larger section. We're in this section where there's six different illustrations that Jesus is giving to, to, to teach one bigger truth. Here's, here's the bigger truth. Jesus comparing, he's comparing, he's, he's, he's comparing the, the, the false teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees with the true teaching of God. He's saying, here's what you've been taught. Here's what God says. So we've been walking through these examples. This is the third one. Two weeks ago, we, we came to this passage where Jesus said, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, which is the sixth commandment. We've, we've read it in scripture, but he's not talking about what we've read. He's talking about what we've heard. He's saying, the scribes and Pharisees have told you, you shall not murder. And if you don't kill someone, you've kept the law. But I say to you, it's bigger than that. When we're angry with someone, that's the same kind of heart sin as murder. The scribes and the Pharisees say don't murder. Jesus says it's deeper than that. Then last week, you've heard it said, the, the seventh commandment, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, anyone who lusts in his heart has committed adultery. Again, the Pharisees had drawn a line and said, if you don't bring someone else into your bed, you've kept the law. Jesus says, if you bring someone else into your mind in a way that dishonors me, you've not kept the law. And so he's, he's calling us deeper. He's calling us to live as the people of God, and it's countercultural. Even among the religious of Jesus' day, Jesus was pushing farther than they went. 
It's contrary to the inclinations of the flesh. But Jesus wants us to live as God's kind of people. The Pharisees and the scribes, so often their, their, their standard fell short. And this is why Jesus says earlier, he's calling us to a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. As, as we live out of this new heart, a heart that recognizes it's, it's bigger than not killing someone. I don't want to be angry with my brother, and if I am, I want to reconcile quickly. And it's bigger than not physically betraying my marriage. It's, it's about what goes on in my head. And here we get a third contrast. Jesus is contrasting the teaching of the religious leaders on divorce with God's standard. Again, we see that they held out a standard that was different than what God intended for his people. We see their standard there in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, a couple of things to be aware of here. First, we should know that he's, this is a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 24. So this is scripture, but it goes some, back to what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, that what Jesus is taking issue here is not the teaching of scripture. What he's taking issue with is a, is a poor understanding and a, and a bad application of scripture. He's taking issue with the way the scribes and the Pharisees interpreted and applied the, the text. In this case, they had taken Deuteronomy 24 and they'd used it as a proof text for basically divorce for any reason. They understood and taught that Deuteronomy 24.1 gave a man permission to divorce his wife for almost anything. And, and the reason that we, we know this is partially because of Jewish writings during this time that laid out their understanding. But, but second, because of Matthew chapter 19. It's a setting where the Pharisees, they, they come to Jesus, and this is their question. And this is what they believe. They, they ask Jesus. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? We won't go to the passage right now, but to summarize it, they're pushing Jesus to agree with them. The law says that a man can divorce his wife for almost any reason. This was their teaching. Just to cut to the chase, Jesus says, no, it's not lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause. And then he backs that up by explaining the, the origin of marriage and God's true intent for marriage. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But for now, I want you to hear Christ's response to them. They ask is it right for us to divorce for any cause? And Jesus says, why, excuse me, he says no. They say, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So the reason we're in Matthew 19 is because it's the same verse that Jesus quotes in Matthew 5. We get more context here. They're saying, why should we not be able to divorce for any cause? Isn't this what Moses said? Didn't Moses say, give a certificate of divorce and send her away? They were using this passage to justify divorce for almost any reason, but they were misapplying the text. And it's worth us taking a minute to, to look at the text ourselves. If you have your Bible, you might just flip back for a second to, to Deuteronomy chapter 24. It's easy to do things with the Bible that we ought not do, isn't it? We can parachute in and come back out and make the Bible say things that it doesn't say. That was the case here. 
Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the, the, the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, following the story here, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. That's an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. It's a key text because this is the text that the scribes and the Pharisees were using to support their system of divorce for almost any cause. And there's a couple of things to be aware of. One, their argument hinged on this word indecency in 24.1. A man takes a wife and marries her if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. It's a word that speaks very specifically to sexual immorality, but they had taken this word and use it in a very general sense. And we have Jewish writings that tell us, indecency? You make a bad meal? That's indecent, right? For almost any cause, they were being allowed to just give her a certificate of divorce, send her away. That's one problem with their interpretation. Second, it's important to recognize this text is not actually a text that's intended to define the terms of divorce. What we don't have in this passage is Moses suggesting that divorce is good or appropriate. And you can read it again later. But it's a passage that's encouraging protection for those who have been sinned against. It's a passage that is written to protect the vulnerable. Some described it as case law. There's a situation here. There's a man who sends his wife away. She marries another. That man dies or sends her away. It's this case law. The first guy can't take her back again. Why this weird situational law? Well, things had progressed to such a point in the day of Moses that women were being taken and sent away, and, and this law is given to protect vulnerable women who didn't have a voice in the society. They're, they're being protected. It's not necessarily a text advocating for divorce. It's Moses commanding regulation. Because divorce is happening, we must protect those who may be victims of abuse, who are being passed back and forth by selfish men. It's interesting that what we have in this law is an acknowledgement just of the reality of sin. Divorce isn't commanded. It's, this law is given because divorce was happening and people were being used and abused. And a law is given mainly to protect those who are the most vulnerable in a male-dominated society. So we go back to Matthew 19. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Well, he didn't actually do that in this text, but Jesus responds this way. Because of the hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. 
If you're confused by Deuteronomy 24, hopefully this helps. Jesus says divorce wasn't a part of God's plan or design. It was allowed because of the hardness of hearts. It became a reality because of our sinful condition. The effects of sin and the harm that was being done to people because of the, the harm concession was given. I think what Jesus is aiming to make clear is that the intention of Deuteronomy 24.1 isn't to normalize divorce. Certainly not to make it easy, but it's to control its consequences. But the scribes, they took this text and they, they created a system where divorce was easy and common. They did things that God never intended. It's the same thing we've seen over the past two weeks, right? The Pharisees said, if you don't murder, you've kept the law. Jesus says, no, <laughs> Deeper than that. I said, if you don't commit adultery, you've kept the law. He says, no, no, it goes deeper than that. And here again, we see that they had misunderstood God's word. They were creating a standard that made it easy for people to say, I'm righteous. I gave her a certificate of divorce. I sent her away. I've kept the law. God says, no, you've misunderstood my heart. You've misunderstood my intentions. Misunderstood is probably a kind word. Jesus helping us see that God's standard goes further than the scribes and the Pharisees had taught. Verse 32, we see the contrast. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See the stakes being raised here? You said, give her a certificate and send her away. I say, you are leading people to sin. hard to hear. But what Jesus giving, is giving here is a warning for the protection of his people. Because when we buy into the ways of the world, we may be inclined to see things as good and right and appropriate, things that God actually says ought not to be done. We have to hear the words of Christ. The scribes and the Pharisees were leading people to sin. They were putting people in danger by telling them, do this, and you're fine. And, and Christ is saying, no, you're, you're leading people into sin. You're opening the door for adultery. It's a warning. And he gives us two different scenarios. Now, there is that exception clause. We'll come back to that. But let's just look at the outsides of verse 32. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. Now, he could come at this from all different angles, a husband, a wife, different situations, and we get that in other parts of the Gospels. But he says here that if a man divorces his wife, he makes her commit adultery. What does that mean? How does he make her commit adultery? Well, again, this is a cultural thing to, to recognize that it would be hard for a lady who'd been married in this culture, if she was divorced, to remain unmarried. She may not be welcomed back into her parents' home, and she may not be able to provide for herself on her own. It's likely that she would marry again. So this man, in putting his wife away, has pushed her into sin. The text says he's made her commit adultery. Here's what Jesus says. 
in that case, your act of divorce has led to adultery. Even if you don't remarry, you've put her in a situation of sin. You're thinking you're doing something God allowed, but what you're doing is not only bringing sin on yourself, but encouraging sin in your wife. We get another situation, verse, the end of verse 32. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, and we see another side of the picture. While a man divorcing his wife may lead her to adultery, now it says on the other side, a man marrying a woman who is divorced is also adultery. So he's just, he's filling out the picture and he's waiting warning signs. The scribes and the Pharisees have said this, but they're opening the door for sin. In their culture, much like ours, divorce was common and easy and there were people coming and going. Jesus wants to make it clear. You're opening the door for sin. And not only your wife, but your remarriage after divorce, he says, is also a matter of adultery. Now, we could take this and we could just go down the list of implications. All the different scenarios that this would clarify. But the point is that Jesus wants to see the consequences while the scribes and the Pharisees were allowing people to divorce for all kinds of reasons, he comes with a warning. Your allowance of divorce is leading to sin. And along the same lines, your allowance of remarriage is leading to sin. And I know there's an exception clause. You're thinking, what about the exception? We'll get to that. But let's not get to the exception so quickly that we feel, forget the weight. We don't feel the weight of what's said. It's a statement of how highly God values marriage. God didn't design or institute divorce. He designed and instituted marriage and calls us to take it seriously. These are warnings. Now, let me ask an important question. Because we can come to texts like this and say true things, and we could walk out thinking, adultery must be the unpardonable sin. Right? I don't want to tell you, church, it's not. Praise God, this is not a sin that's beyond forgiveness. Is it serious? Yeah, it is. I'd be lying if I told you it wasn't. Is it unforgivable? No. I wouldn't be telling you the full truth if I didn't tell you your sin can be forgiven. This is why Jesus came. He came for sinners. He came to give mercy and forgiveness to those who have sinned. We'll come back to that. But first, let's, let's talk about that exception. Jesus says that divorce leads to adultery, but not always. There is the exception clause, except on the ground of sexual immorality. So Jesus gives this strong warning, and then he offers this exception. He does say there's a reason for divorce that would allow someone to marry again without committing adultery. Here's the reason. The exception is when the marriage ends because of sexual immorality or unfaithfulness. And in this case, Jesus says that the party who is sinned against will be allowed to divorce or remarry. If the first marriage ended because of unfaithfulness, the person who was sinned against would be freed and permitted to marry again without committing adultery. And I know this is like dictionary talk here, but I want to be clear. It's an allowance for the reality that we live in a broken world, a sin-cursed world. 
When God describes marriage, he describes it as a one flesh union. But there is a sin that disrupts that one flesh union in a significant way. What we see is this exception that acknowledges that reality. We live in a world where people are sinned against in awful ways. Where husbands betray wives and wives betray husbands. And because of this, because of the hardness of our hearts, there is a provision. God has seen fit to allow freedom to those who have been sinned against in this particular way. Let me say this. It's permitted. It's not required. I think it's sometimes we can, we can run really fast. Because perhaps we were already unhappy, right? And now I have my out. It's allowed. It's not required. If one space is, spouse is unfaithful, it doesn't require divorce. Praise God, there is forgiveness. There's restoration. There's reconciliation. And we read so much about this throughout the New Testament. The goal should never be to find a reason for divorce. The goal should be to find a way for forgiveness. We also recognize that there are times when divorce is necessary, when it's needful, so we have this provision. But let me say this. While divorce, in some cases, may not be sinful, it's always tragic. As Christians, we should be the first to acknowledge that divorce was not God's ideal. And any divorce is a reminder of the fallenness of our world. So while it may be needful in some cases, we should never celebrate it. It should always be a reason for mourning and a reminder of our need for Christ. What we see in the text is that Jesus provides an allowance. While we're here and on the topic, it's, it's worth noting that Paul seems to give another exception. And while we're here, I do want to take us to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for a minute. Because Paul says this. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 12. To the rest I say, if not I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving party separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So, again, another situation. If a person has a spouse that's an unbeliever who leaves the marriage, the believing spouse who is left would be freed from the marriage. It's another exception. Why the exceptions? And I think it's just a reminder of the compassion of our God. It's an example of his kindness for those in hard situations. And when we're talking about exceptions and the grace of God, let me add another thing, something that maybe is in the back of your mind. Something that's clear in Matthew 5 is that those who remarry after unbiblical divorce, he says, commit adultery. And there may be some who have been in this situation. You were divorced. Your divorce was sinful. You remarried. 
And now, and now the question has come, am I living in a perpetual state of adultery? What do I do now? The answer to the question can be found in verse 32. He says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I think it's significant that he says this second relationship is a marriage. You're married. There's adultery, but there's also a marriage. And if we're consistent, we have to understand that it would be further sin for another marriage to be broken. So in this case, the appropriate thing would be for the the couple to repent, to acknowledge we came into this relationship in sin. We've accepted the mercy and forgiveness of God, and now we are committed to living as a married couple in a way that honors God. Again, it's a kindness of God, His mercy. We're going a lot of directions, aren't we? It's a big topic, and we don't come to it often, so I wanted to try to flesh it out some while we're here. So we look at Matthew 5, the point of the passage that Jesus is showing that the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, it was not consistent with the teaching of God. They were allowing something that God had created for good to be misused. They were treating it carelessly. They weren't leading people to righteousness. They were leading people into sin. And so Jesus is coming and saying, this is not the way we live in the kingdom of God. Marriage is not something to be treated loosely. It's to be honored. Which is where I want to to spend our last couple of minutes. It's not in our text in Matthew 5, but in Matthew 19, we actually have all the words of Matthew 5, but in the middle, Jesus says more. There's the question about divorce, and Jesus says the same thing about adultery, but in the middle, he gives a reason why marriage should be cherished. He defines God's intention for marriage, so We'll end in Matthew 19. If you have your Bible, that's where we'll be for the last few minutes. Matthew 19, verse 3. The Pharisees came to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, God is joined together. Let not man separate. He takes us back to God's original design. He takes us back to Genesis. By the time of Deuteronomy, sin had changed things. But Jesus says, let's define marriage from the way God designed it and intended it. Let's go back to the beginning Marriage is one of those things that God incorporated into his original plan for us. This passage, he's quoting Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and let's just consider a few things about what he says here about about marriage. First, it's, it's rooted in creation. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He he made male and female in his image, and he made us in such a way that we could come together. And be united. It's an important part of the conversation. Marriage was God's plan. Which means if this is God's plan, and it's not some man-made 
struck, if, if God designed it, then, then God sets the parameters, right? We use it the way he intends. It's his design. Marriage is rooted in creation. It's, it's created by God. And it's the making of one from two. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one. A mysteriously beautiful truth here. That when we enter into marriage, it's more than a legal agreement, which is what our world will tell us, right? It's more than a joint partnership. God says when we come together in marriage, the two become one. We're united in a way that doesn't happen in, in any other relationship in our lives. It's unique and it's mysterious. And it doesn't happen anywhere else. This is not true of your relationship with your kids. You love them. It's a special relationship. It's not as unique as marriage. It's not true of any other close relationship. The marriage relationship is unlike any other. It's the joining of two into one, and it's never meant to be divided. This is God's plan. One man, one woman for life. But the Pharisees and scribes are coming and saying, write a certificate, send her away. And Jesus is calling them back and saying, no, 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 you're misunderstanding God's plan. God's design is that two people would come together and become one flesh. There's something else here. He says, it's not something you create. I came in, I can go out, and the text says, what God joined together, let no man separate. Two parts here. First, what God joined together. God does the joining, right? Which is to say, it's not simply an agreement that you made with another person. God's a part of this. He has united you. How different is this from the way that most people think about marriage? For most of us, it's something we form, we govern. We choose, and we can choose not to. What we see here is God views marriage as an agreement, a covenant that God is a part of. Beautifully mysterious. And the logic is clear for the second part of the verse. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is meant to be for a lifetime. Man should not try to undo what God has done. We should not try to unjoin what God has joined. We've moved away from Matthew 5, but I think it's important for us to see the, the substance behind the command. It's clear the scribes and Pharisees had missed the heart of God. Instead of looking at what pleased God, they were playing fast and loose with the law, allowing it to say what they wanted, and they were leading people to sin. It's countercultural, isn't it? He's calling us to live as people who are different and to reflect him to the world. I won't try to exposit Ephesians 5 for you this morning, right? Or so many texts that, that help us see that our marriages are a reflection of God's covenant faithfulness with us. And so as we live as his people, we're reflecting that to the world. What an incredible privilege to be on display to the world of God's love 
This is the gospel that he loved us when we did not deserve love. While we rebelled against him in every way, while we played the harlot, God was faithful. Even as we consider the ways we've been sinned against, as we consider the difficulty of faithfulness, we remember that we have a God who is faithful to us. And if you're here and this reminds you of your sin, rest in this. God sent his son so you can be forgiven and he will never let you go. His love is perfect. His faithfulness is forever. He will never forsake us. He will never abandon us. He will always take us back when we wander. He is always patient. If you're here and you've been married and divorced or married twice or three times, you don't have to live in your shame. You can live in an example. You can live as an example of his grace and his mercy and his faithfulness to you despite your sin. If you're here and you're married, friends, remember, marriage is a way for us to portray to the world what it looks like to live and love as God loved us. Our call is to live with our spouse in a way that we display to the world the faithfulness of God, an example of sacrificial love. It's a high calling. It's a beautiful privilege. For all of us, I pray that we would be a people who believe God's word, who hunger and thirst for what is right, even when the world tells us we're backwards. I also pray that we would be a church that proclaims God loves sinners. God forgives. God restores. God heals. And that we would be a church that lives in the freedom of knowing and striving for what is right and receiving mercy and forgiveness when we sin and proclaiming that to, to, to the world. sermon about being God's kind of people. I pray that would be our desire. Let's pray together.